Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Surprise, friends. It is an extra episode this week. We are celebrating all the things. Year two of Done and Done. Patreon is live. We have a Done and Done Facebook now, too. It's all just too good not to really stick the landing on a brand new everything for the coming year. And well, Valentine's week, too. There's nothing I love more than Done. I am so happy you are here with me today. In this episode, we are picking up with the thread that was left in yesterday's episode, when our nine-year-old Nick recalls being obsessed with Lana Turner being discovered at Schwab's drugstore by Mervyn Leroy. Dunn will later write, There is a mythology of the great blonde movie stars, and I happen to enjoy it. I still want to believe that Lana Turner was discovered at the soda fountain of Schwab's drugstore on the Sunset Strip, even though I know it isn't true. No, it's not true, and even the timeline is out of sync with our nine-year-old Nick's recollections. But we are going to talk about the real-life Lana Turner origin story today, and then spend a little more time with Lana, legendary and notorious. Lana Turner will make an enormous impact in Dominic Dunn's life in 1958 upon the death of her lover, Johnny Stompanato. A previous Dunn and Dunn profile, Ava Gardner, who is a great friend of Lana Turner's, will say, Lana Turner says that life is what happens to you while the crow's feet are fucking up your good looks. Lana has a name and a story for every goddamn wrinkle on her face. This episode will attempt to explain a few of those wrinkles. Let's pose a few questions in our continuing quest. How does Lana Turner really get discovered? How does Dominic Dunn fulfill those nine-year-old starstruck ambitions and get himself back to Hollywood? And what really happened that wet, rainy April night in 1958 to Johnny Stompanato, lying dead in the home of Lana Turner? Let's investigate. Darlings, before we begin this episode, a few things I want to ensure to mention. There are instances of intimate partner violence and abuse in this episode, which is never okay. The episode show notes will include international resources just for you to keep handy as a helpful thing to know. Also, I am naturally using Dominic Dunn's own work in this episode from the way we lived then, but I'm also heavily pulling from our mother-daughter pair that actually lived this story. Lana Turner from her biography, Lana, The Lady, The Legend, The Truth. We've also sourced heavily from Cheryl Crane, Lana's daughter. Her works, Detour, A Hollywood Story, as well as Lana, The Memories, The Myths, The Movies. Both very wonderful books, all excellent sources if you want to learn more. 
Any source we use on Done and Done can be found at our website. One more Big Love Chef's Kiss shout out to Melanie Z, who did a treasure trove of research on the legendary Lana Turner for Trashy Divorces, which was so enormously helpful in pulling together this extra episode for you today. I think the business is out of the way. Let us go ahead and begin to clarify the origin story of Lana Turner. Dunn knows that it isn't true her being discovered at Schwab's, but it sure does make a terrific legend. Lana Turner is not, in fact, discovered at Schwab's drugstore by Mervyn Leroy, although Schwab's was one of the locations of those sweater girl photo shoots that make a worldwide impact. Let's give a little bit of background on Lana Turner to substantiate Dunn's claim in the timeline. Lana was born Julia Jean Turner, February 8, 1921. Julia Jean's mom, Mildred, is four days shy of her 17th birthday when Julia Jean is born. But Mildred met Lana's father, who was 10 years older. He was a miner who came out to inspect Mildred's father's mines. Mildred was 14, dad was 24, and unsurprisingly, Mildred's father does not approve of this love affair. It is no matter. 14-year-old Mildred and Lana's father elope, and soon enough, there's a baby on the way. Little Lana, at this point in her life, will be called Judy, and her family is struggling financially, but little Judy likes to perform. And eventually, the family will make it from Idaho to San Francisco. And then at this point, mom and dad separate. Judy stays with Mildred, her mom, and dad. Ah, it's definitely some wrinkles here. Dad is part of a traveling craps game and ends up winning super big one night. Looking forward to buying a gift for his daughter, Judy. will stuff all of his winning money into his sock and the following day is found bludgeoned to death with one sock and one shoe missing. Fairly tragic. Lana Turner has never had it easy. So at this point, Mama Mildred and baby Judy are staying with friends trying to save money. There are some really terrible years here. Mildred is working 80 hours a week to support herself and the baby, and they're living on crackers. It is very much an impoverished childhood. Because Mildred is working so much, little Judy will be boarded into a foster home where, even more terrible, she's exploited as household help. She's physically abused and most certainly psychologically manipulated to keep quiet about it. This is all very, very bad. Judy will find some solace in the Catholic Church, though. She will convert to Catholicism when she's seven years old. Judy will attend Catholic school and decides from an early age she would like to be a nun. The theater and the thrill of the church was really appealing to Judy. But Mildred, mom, isn't feeling all that great. And her doctor is like, you need a drier climate, maybe head south. And Mildred and Judy do. They'll head to Los Angeles in about 1936. And Lana is 15 and about to be a star. It is early in 1937 where a 16-year-old Judy is cutting class one day, like you do, and she is chilling out at the Top Hat Malt Shop. And in walks Billy Wilkerson. He's the founder of a little publication called The Hollywood Reporter. This is how literally a star is born. 
Billy Wilkerson goes to the manager of the shop and is like, hey, man, I don't really want to be a creep here, but I'd really like to talk to that girl. So the manager of the Top Hat Malt Shop will stick pretty close when Judy and Billy are talking. And the next thing you know, there's a meeting with Mama Mildred at Billy's office and a note is sent to Zeppo Marks. And by 1938, Judy is now Lana and signed to a $100 a week contract. So a little later than the 1935 recollection from Nick, our well-known name dropper, but the background of how Lana is actually discovered is not the end of the Lana story. She will come back to be a key player by the late 1950s in Dominic's world, but we have to get Nick back to Hollywood first. 1957 is a big year for Dominic. Lana too, but one thing at a time. How do we get the nine-year-old starstruck kid back to Hollywood as an early 30-something married father with two kids? Like, Dominic's a grown man now, but the nine-year-old starstruck kid has never left the inside of his heart. In 1957, the Dunns are in New York City. Dominic is a hotshot stage manager for NBC. He's married to Lenny. They have two young sons. And in this year, Nick will get a chance to leave NBC and go to work for CBS. He's offered a gig assisting the producer Martin Manilis, who right now is working on the biggest television show happening. It's called Playhouse 90. Playhouse 90 is a drama series. It has all the best names, all the best scripts, all the best stars. And there is definitely something happening differently within the television scene in Los Angeles than there is in New York City, and Nick wants in on that West Coast action. The pay is lousy, 75 bucks a week. Remember, it will always help Nick that Lenny, his wife, is a landed heiress. But alas, Dominic Dunn is hired to work on the television remake of The Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart, reprising his original film role of gangster Duke Mantee. Dominic Dunn is going to get this lucky break to get to Hollywood from, you will never believe it, his future enemy Frank Sinatra, who will remember Dominic Dunn from his stage manager role in Our Town that Frank stars in back in 1955. And Frank and Humphrey are running buddies by this time. Frank recommends Nick and it is off for three weeks to the Beverly Hills Hotel, where CBS is putting Nick up for his stay during the production of The Petrified Forest. Now, Dominic is just pretty excited about staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. While he's there, there's Howard Hughes staying in a bungalow with armed security guards. Dominic Dunn will walk by a thousand times a day. There's Catherine Hepburn, who's an old neighbor from the Dunns in Hartford, Connecticut. She's out playing tennis on the courts. Dominic Dunn is already investigating here. He finds out the real deals are not done necessarily in the polo lounge. They're done in the cafe downstairs where all the real stuff happens. I mean, Nick is living large already. I can only imagine how excited he already is. Before production even begins... Nick, being the good Catholic that he is, will attend Mass Sunday, where he'll run into his old friend from New York City. Old in that they've known each other a long time, she's actually very young and not quite as well known as she will be. It is the 
lovely and not yet married to her future prince of a husband, Grace Kelly. I know, right? Now, Grace Kelly needs an escort to the premiere of The Bandwagon. This movie is coming out and the studio wants her to go. She needs an escort. She knows Nick. She asks Nick. It is Nick's first Hollywood premiere party. And he goes with Grace Kelly. Wow. It is on these incredible highs. Just try to imagine what's happening in the nine-year-old brain of Dominic Dunn here. That Dominic's going to get to set and then meet Humphrey Bogart. Which to Dominic must have been incredible. Humphrey Bogart, he's an East Coast aristocrat. Well healed. The two start to talking. There is a common East Coast lingo that both men share. They know the same preparatory schools. They know the same places. So they're beginning to get to know each other in that East Coast kind of way that men do, dislocated to the other side of the world. And once Dominic Dunn gets comfortable, he will share with Humphrey Bogart how much he loves looking at movie stars. Humphrey Bogart will respond, what are you doing this weekend? Dunn, thinking of his weekend plans of being alone and stalking Howard Hughes at the Beverly Hills Hotel, responds, yeah, I haven't really made any plans. And Humphrey Bogart says, come to our house meaning his home with his wife, Lauren Bacall. They have a beautiful home in Holmby Hills that is the center of all the Rat Pack goodness. And it is off this weekend, you know, like you do to Bogey and Bacall's, and Dominic Dunn's world is never going to be the same. Judy Garland lives next door. She sings that night with Frank Sinatra at the piano. Lana Turner is also a neighbor. She shows up. Spencer Tracy is there. So is Susan Fonda, currently married to Henry Fonda, who apparently, Susan, does an incredible imitation of Joan Crawford. David Niven, who Nick knows from New York City, greets Nick warmly. Dominic recalls he's never felt so welcomed, so accepted. These are his people. He feels like he finally belongs. He will write, Before the night was over, people jumped in the pool in their party clothes. I jumped in too. I wanted to be part of it. I thought to myself, this is how I want to live. Oh, it is poor sweet wife Lenny, who will get Nick's middle-of-the-night phone call when he returns from that party. Oh, bless Lenny, who is asleep in New York with a two-year-old and a newborn that are going to be up when the sun is in just an hour or two. Nick says to Lenny, we have to move to Hollywood. It is incredible. Oh, sweet Lenny. She says, sure, Nick. The plan is actually to go out for like six weeks or six months. We'll go check it out. We're not staying there forever. We're not West Coast people. We're East Coast people, but we'll we'll go out there for a little while. (laughs) And thus begins a new voyage that the couple will live, love, thrive, and fall apart in the coming decades on the West Coast. But at this time, it's all sunshine. No bad things yet. Lenny's putting up with it. And the two will rent a beach cottage in Malibu that belongs to Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd, a silent film star who much preferred to stay in the city. Now, when I say beach cottage, y'all, I need you to know this has like seven or eight bedrooms. Nick says there are too many to count. And holy cats, 
The Dunn's neighbors are Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford to one side. Now, Peter and Patricia lived in the home that Nick and Lenny are living in before they buy the house next door, the old Louis B. Mayer place. So many spider webs. Also, the other side, the Dunn's other neighbor is Daryl Zanuck. It's all happening. There's some sad things that happen in that beach home, and by the next year, 1958, Nick and Lenny have bought the two-story Georgian on Walden Drive in Beverly Hills. And it appears that the couple is going to stay longer than that six-month idea. They're going to settle down and make some roots. Naturally, with the fancy house in Beverly Hills, Lenny is going to hire Foxy Leshen, the mother of Stephen Sondheim, not what she's known for. Foxy Leshen at this time is a famous interior designer. She will decorate the Walden Drive home for the Dunn's, Dunn will describe it as stylish and very Billy Baldwin. The evening of Friday, April 4th, 1958, is a good Friday. It's Easter weekend. And the Dunn family that night watch Phil Silver's comedy for a bit, Sergeant Bilko. And once the kiddos are in bed, the couple will settle down and watch Edward R. Murrow and then head off to sleep for the weekend to come. The thing you might also want to know is that home on Walden Drive is also right around the corner from the home in April of 1958, too, that Lana Turner will be moving into. Nick and Lenny are about to get a new neighbor, and it is from this point that we will be back continuing our investigation right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. All right, investigators, let's talk about the other side of this. See, 1957 has been a pretty big year for Lana Turner, too. Oh, Lana, what a lady, what a legend. Lana in 1957 is getting out of her marriage number four. And it is messy. The divorce was terrible from Lex Barker, but it is prompted because Lex was sexually abusing Cheryl, Lana's daughter, and threatening Cheryl with juvenile hall if she told of her abuse. Cheryl remains quiet about this for years, but finally will one day work up the courage to tell her grandmother, who naturally will tell Lana, and to Lana's credit, once she discovers this news, after all of the terrible that Lex and Lana were already as a couple, Lana hears about Cheryl's abuse and gives Lex 20 minutes to get the hell out of their lives, which Lex will. This divorce is done in 1957, and Lana, many years later, hearing Lex Barker drop dead of a heart attack on the streets of New York City, only has one comment, and that is, it wasn't soon enough. So going back to 1957, we find Lana Turner in a very vulnerable position in life and with men. And it's 
Lana Turner, after all, so it's not going to take too long for another gentleman to come sniffing around. When I use the term gentleman, I use it very loosely because welcome Johnny Stompanato. Not that Johnny Stompanato is going to introduce himself to Lana that way originally. He'll say his name is John Steele. And wowza, John Steele is sending flowers every day, all day to Lana Turner until she agrees to speak with him. And finally, when John gets Lana on the phone, the first thing he's going to do is name drop. I know your good friend, Ava Gardner. Lana and Ava are good friends. Lana and Ava have both been married to the same man, Artie Shaw. They've both dated Frank Sinatra, too. Lana and Ava have shared numerous lovers throughout their time in Hollywood. They're buddies. But the long-ago days of the MGM studio ways and the girls getting their makeup done together, sharing notes for good or ill, are long over. Ava Gardner is now off in Europe in 1957, living her best life. And Lana's not going to get the chance to gossip about John Steele with her friend, like they did together with Frank Sinatra or Artie Shaw or countless others. Lana will instead believe John Steele. Hey, flowers boost a gal's ego, and after a rough divorce and some career troubles, I get that the attention feels good for Lana. Soon enough, jewelry was coming with the flowers. Even a bigger gift. There's soon delivered a red Arabian horse for Cheryl that will be named Rowena. Now, Lana Turner trying to pin John Steele down. Hey, what do you do for a living? How can you afford all of these flowers and all of this jewelry? And all of John's answers are very vague. Something, something about producing records. But all the attention that Lana's getting leaves her not too terribly worried about the details. Cheryl, even though she does get a horse named Rowena, does remember John as, quote, handsome in an oily kind of way. He had the B-picture good looks that were not unremarkable in a town where almost every waiter had a star's profile. Thick-set, powerfully built, and soft-spoken, he talked in short sentences to cover a poor grasp of grammar. He seldom smiled or laughed out loud, but seemed always coiled, holding himself in. His watchful hooded eyes took in more than he wanted anyone to notice, I think. And he had that heavy quiet about him that made you wonder what he was thinking. I seldom wondered, however. He was just mother's new one. I had stopped investing myself in her husbands and lovers because they always wound up vanishing in the night. Which is what John Steele should have done before the fate that befalls him, but alas, John Steele has integrated himself into Lana and her life, and soon enough, Lana finds out that John Steele is really Johnny Stompanato. Y'all, this dude has a history. Lana's gonna find out more about him as time goes on, but let me give you a brief summary to get you to this point. Johnny is the son of a barbershop owner. His mom dies after his birth. John is sent to military school. Maybe he goes to Notre Dame for a year. Maybe he joins the military. After the war, he'll open an international nightclub. He'll marry. He'll have a child. They separate. And Johnny ends up in California by mm, 
Sketchy timeline here, 1947, 1948, no later than 1949. And it is here in California that Johnny Stompanato will meet Mickey Cohen, legendary mobster. And Johnny gets himself a new job. He is working for Mickey Cohen as his bodyguard. Now, Johnny kind of ambitious. He's got some other jobs too. He'll sell some cars. He's a pet shop owner. He'll get married again and is divorced inside of three months. He'll marry again and is divorced inside of three years. And Johnny's a good-looking guy, so it's easy for him to get girls to arrange when other visiting mobsters come to town. Generally all around pretty shady. Oh, there's also some armed robbery charges too. Essentially his main source of revenue by 1957, when he's meeting Lana Turner, was seducing women and borrowing money from them. His police file notes, when the victim's money is dissipated, he becomes interested in another woman. So I hope you're getting what I'm putting down here. Johnny Stompanato is a liar and a grifter. Lana will confront Johnny with all of these lies, and it is here that Johnny becomes aggressive and more possessive. Now, Lana would go to the authorities about it, but Lana, if you don't know anything else about her, is terribly image conscious. The publicity of how that would look going to the authorities because she's in this situation, Lana deems impossible. But our girl thinks she's got a plan figured out. And that plan is just to wait it out. Lana's going to be headed over to England to make a film called Another Place, Another Time. And Lana thinks, let me just get out of here. Let me get out of here, make some room between me and Johnny, and maybe just Johnny will quietly go away. The next thing you probably want to know about Lana Turner, besides her image conscious thing, is that she's pretty fragile. She's always looking to fill something. And Here she is in a different country, and she's really overwhelmed at a foreign shoot. She's in culture shock. Also in this film, she's co-producing, which has added pressure she's not used to. And soon enough, fragile, vulnerable Lana ends up calling Johnny to lend a little bit of comfort. And (laughs) here comes Johnny, off to Europe to comfort Lana, which doesn't end up giving her too much comfort at all. Johnny arrives, and within the reunion, he will choke Lana and crush her larynx, which she will pass off as laryngitis, but Lana's makeup man, he's not having it. He'll call Scotland Yard and drop the dime on Johnny Stompanato, and soon enough, Stompanato's deported. Lana is terribly disappointed because all of this scandal will cancel her presentation where she's supposed to meet the queen. It's terrible. The scandal is hot news. So when the filming wraps, Lana is going to take a little time to go recharge in Acapulco. Lana will claim she does not know how Johnny found out where she would be, but soon enough, Johnny Stompanato has showed up at the hotel where she is, and when he arrives, a few things happen here. Johnny refuses to let Lana out of his sight. She cannot even go to the bathroom alone. That's creepy number one. Creepy number two, Johnny talks to the owner of the hotel when he arrives and convinces the said owner of the hotel to give Johnny a gun as protection. What does Johnny need protection from, you ask? Well, apparently, according to Johnny, he needs protection from the feral iguanas that invade the resort at night. 
So yeah, I don't know what Johnny's playing at, but I don't like it. He is going to use that gun that the owner of the hotel gives him to threaten Lana for the rest of the trip. Now, the actual good news that happens in Acapulco is that Lana finds out that she's been nominated for an Academy Award for her work in Peyton Place. Congrats, and it's all wonderful. And Lana still doesn't know quite how to extricate herself from Johnny, but she will make a stand here. She's going to tell Johnny, I'm taking my daughter to the Oscars. I'm taking my mother too. You, Johnny Stompanato, are not my date. You're not invited. Lana doesn't win the Oscar that night, but no matter, things are looking up in the world. So this is going to get us to Dateline, March 26th, 1958, where Lana and Cheryl are having a post-Oscar slumber party at the Bel Air Hotel. And Lana also gives Cheryl some news this night. Even better, so exciting, Lana has just rented an amazing new house on North Bedford. It's a wonderful home that was originally built by Laura Hope Cruz, who played Aunt Pity Pat in Gone with the Wind. This home was built from her Gone with the Wind money, and if it had columns, this house could be a stand-in for Tara. Great news, the family's going to get a new home, they're moving, it's lovely, this is happening inside of a week. We can move in on April the 1st. So this mother-daughter fun night happens, big news, Cheryl's going to head to bed. And this is how Cheryl will describe what happens next. You bitch, shouted a man from mother's bedroom. How dare you tell me to leave? You think you're a big star. Glass shattering. I want you out of here, she said. How dare you ruin my night? You no good lousy, taking your kid and old lady to that thing tonight instead of me. It was John, mother's boyfriend. I thought they were still lovebirds. I knew that he wanted to go to the Oscars and she had said no, but this voice in the night didn't sound like his. John Stompanato spoke quietly and carefully. This John was crude, with a cold, ragged edge to his voice. Lana, if you don't leave here this very minute, I will call the manager. Lana, you will never get rid of me. I'm sticking around. Don't even touch that goddamn phone. And Lana won't. Again, doesn't call the authorities. Johnny leaves and Lana will attempt to talk to Cheryl this night, who will pretend to be asleep. The following morning, mother and daughter say nothing about what has happened the night before. It is business as usual. Cheryl is back with her grandmother. She's going to be there until move-in day. Cheryl is having oral surgery April 1st. I got a lot of feelings for Cheryl here. A little bit of a tidbit. Cheryl Crane's best friend is Liza Minnelli. It's her first friend. Lana Turner and Judy Garland have lived next door to each other in Holmby Hills in the early 1950s. And Liza and Cheryl play together. Uh, Cheryl recalls in playing with Liza, Liza would use a pine cone to mimic a microphone to recreate her mother Judy Garland shows. Judy Garland additionally becomes quite a mother figure to Cheryl. Cheryl's own mother, Alana Turner, again, perception, self-image is always camera ready. Cheryl's never allowed to kiss her mother, only air kisses. Cheryl finds a different kind of maternal within Judy Garland. She'll write, I could kiss and cuddle with Judy and not worry about messing her up since she never wore makeup or fancy clothes. She was always in flats, black toriador pants, and a short ponytail. 
Judy was always full of laughter, and I would plant myself adoringly at her feet to stare at her. She seemed wonderful in every way. So this is very different than what Cheryl is facing the first week of April. See, moving day's coming up. She's got oral surgery, too. She is leaving her maternal influence, Judy Garland, behind the home and her friend Liza Minnelli, too. And the home that Lana and Cheryl will rent on Bedford is fully furnished. There's not a lot to do. But the thing that does need to be done is acquiring pots, pans, and cutlery. It is on March 31st that Johnny Stompanato will go with Lana to Pioneer Hardware to pick out these essentials, as Lana's cutlery, pots, and pans are in storage at the time. Johnny Stompanato will select the knife carving set, and Lana says she was okay with that. She didn't know anything about that. Just pick something out. She signs the order. Everything's going to be delivered April the 1st. Tuesday, April 1st, starts out fine enough. Lana is going to drive Cheryl to the oral surgeon, brings Cheryl home, and sweet Cheryl describes this scene from a Demerol haze, where Johnny Stompanato shows up, still mad from being left out of the Oscars, and says to Lana, you will never pull that on me again. You will never leave me out of anything. If you go someplace, I go there too. This time I let you get away with it, but next. And all of this noise wakes Cheryl, who will call out what's wrong. And Lana says, nothing, everything's fine. John came by to say hello, but he's leaving. But Stompanato will not hit the road until he makes one last threat. He'll say, you motherfucker, you do what I say or I'll cut up your face. Maybe I'll have it done for me. No one will ever want to look at that pretty face again. Yikes, this is terrible. So this time when Lana comes after Johnny leaves, Cheryl does not pretend to be asleep. And Cheryl just doesn't understand why Lana doesn't leave him. And Lana says, I can't, baby. The truth is, I'm afraid of him. He threatened to hurt me if I tried to leave him. He knows people he can hire to harm my face or even kill me. Baby, what am I going to do? You've got to help me. Please, will you? And this part from Cheryl Crane writing about the mood and her general thoughts and feelings happening four days before this all goes down and her mother is just, it's simply riveting. Cheryl will write, she had played the lingering close-up well. Now cut, that's a print. I swallowed hard because I believe she was in danger. But something inside me said that 80% of what she was doing at this moment was play acting. Screen art blurred into life. She was in a jam. It was clear to see. But at some level in her mind, she was already beginning to self-dramatize in order to manipulate an escape. She was incredibly reaching out for help from me, a 14-year-old. I had seen her do things like this before, unloading her personal problems onto others for them to straighten out. Until her MGM contract was dropped two years before, an army of service departments had made all her great and small worries go away. In addition, there were always her lawyers, agents, managers, maids, hairdressers, boyfriends, and gran to turn to before economies had to be made and the soldiers cut back. Now, raw recruit that I was, it was my turn. 
14-year-old Cheryl, recovering from oral surgery, begins to troubleshoot her mom's problem. But Lana will dismiss any and all of the solutions that Cheryl suggests. One, naturally, would be to call the cops. And Lana says, ah, the publicity. The press would have a field day. In her autobiography, Cheryl will write in that moment, I felt as though I was talking to someone with no brain. It turns out that Lana did call Clinton Anderson, the head of the Beverly Hills Police Department. He's also a family friend. Clinton Anderson was big buddies with Cheryl's dad and Lana's previous ex-husband, Stephen Crane, who was now running a little Polynesian-themed bar and restaurant called the Luau. But Lana is hesitant to file anything formally, and soon enough it's going to be too late to do so. Friday, April 4th is Good Friday, the weekend of Easter, and Lana and Johnny that day shop for a bit. They meet friends for happy hour cocktails back at the new home. And oddly enough, that afternoon, one of those friends recognizes Johnny from his military academy days. But this is a shock to Lana because another lie of Johnny Stompanato's is revealed here. Johnny had told Lana that he was 43, but with this friend and the new information Lana has, it turns out that Johnny Stompanato is 33, which makes Lana five years older than him. And whatever illusions Lana Turner had, they have now been shattered. Here it finally imprints that Johnny is using her. And Lana's fed up with his lies, his violence, all of it. And Lana will say to Cheryl, this is absolutely the last, the end, it's over. I'm going to get rid of him tonight. I don't know how. Baby, this is not going to be easy, you know. He's not going to want to leave. And sure enough, Lana called that one. She does confront Johnny. He does go into a rage. Cheryl is doing her homework on the human circulatory system and here's it going down. She thinks it's the same thing that always happens, so Cheryl will turn on Phil Silver's Sergeant Bilko. And even Lana tries to get out of the fight that's happening, telling Johnny, I want to go watch TV with Cheryl. We've been in Europe. It's been a long time since I've seen American television, but Johnny having none of that. Johnny and Lana are going to end up in Lana's bedroom where Johnny will grab her by the shoulders and begin to shake her, screaming, this time you'll get it. No one will ever look at that pretty face again. Now the noise and the energy, this argument, it's just too loud and too much for Cheryl not to hear. She will continue writing. In a panic, I ran downstairs and into the kitchen where on the sink counter lay one of the knives mother had bought. The thought of scaring him away flashed into my mind. I went back up the stairs to mother's bedroom and stood outside her door for a few moments as Stompanato continued threatening to disfigure her. Suddenly mother threw open the door. John came up from behind, his arm raised as if to strike. I took a step forward and he ran on the knife in my hands. For three ghastly heartbeats, our bodies fused. He looked at me unblinking. My God, Cheryl, what have you done? In slow motion, he pulled off and jerked in backward steps towards the bed. Every second, his unbelieving eyes fixed on mine. But why, they asked. Then they fluttered towards the ceiling, and when he looked back at me, his face hardened. 
He knew that his life was ending and he hadn't seen it coming. Yeah, he sure hadn't seen that one coming. As Lana later explained, she had been opening the door for Johnny, who had finally made moves to leave. Lana will say Cheryl didn't grasp the fact that he was carrying clothing on hangers over his shoulder. All Cheryl saw was just that upraised threatening hand and what appeared to be some kind of weapon. Cheryl drops the knife and goes and hides in a room, while Lana tries to revive Johnny. Lana picks up the knife, drops it into the sink, and Lana recalls thinking, do something, call a doctor, call my mother, but I couldn't remember the numbers for a while. Finally, my mother's number surfaced and I dialed it almost automatically. Lana calls her mom and says that Johnny is dead and will ask her for the number of a family friend who is a doctor. Her mother told Lana that she'll call the doctor herself and come right over. Meanwhile, Cheryl had called her father, Stephen Crane, and Gran and Stephen Crane and the doctor all arrive about the same time. The doctor takes one look at Johnny Stompanato and tells Lana to call a lawyer. Lana will track down criminal lawyer Jerry Giesler at a dinner party. Now, Jerry Giesler, y'all, he had gotten both Errol Flynn and Charlie Chaplin acquitted of statutory rape charges. When Dr. George Hodel, who is believed to be the Black Dahlia killer, is on trial for child molestation charges, Jerry Giesler is the guy who gets Hodel off too. Jerry Giesler also handles Robert Mitchum's drug case, as well as Marilyn Monroe's divorce from Joe DiMaggio. So it is Jerry Giesler that is coming into the home just after the authorities do. This is what Dominic Dunn calls a rich people thing. How do we get this account of how it all goes down? Let's connect our two plot lines here. So Nick and Lenny around the corner at their house on Walden Drive, asleep, until all the sirens start happening. And they're getting closer and they're getting closer. And sure enough, they're right around the corner. And Nick doesn't give one hoot about the wet, rainy night. Something's going down. So he'll grab an umbrella and is straight out of Walden Drive and around the corner. Ten minutes later, Nick is back, spilling to Lenny what he already knows about what's happening at Lana Turner's home. Sweet Lenny is super concerned and more than a little embarrassed that her husband is peering about a crime scene with all the other looky-loos. But alas, Nick kisses his wife, tells her goodnight, and don't wait up for me. And when Nick gets back, here's where he will see an ambulance, half a dozen police cars, and cars by the second loaded with paparazzi pouring out of them. And there's Jerry Giesler heading into Lana's home. Can you imagine what is happening in Dominic Dunn's brain? Like just processing the scene around him. The kid who snuck out of Canterbury School to get the newspaper reports of the Lonergan case. The man who was obsessed with the Woodward case just a few years before. Whoa, Dominic Dunn is having true crime happen right here in his neighborhood. And it's Lana Turner to boot. This story will fascinate Nick. He is obsessed by it. Nick fully believes that Cheryl takes the rap for Lana. But let's talk about how it all goes down. About an hour after the stabbing, Clinton Anderson shows up. And Cheryl will remember. 
Everything was done stringently by the books out of fear it might be reported that the daughter of Lana Turner had received special treatment. I was booked on suspicion of murder and taken to juvenile hall. There were two court hearings, an inquest, threats from Mickey Cohen, who arranged the publication of love letters from mother to John, an unlawful death suit filed by Stompanato's brother, and custody battles between mom, dad, and the state of California. Through it all, the crush of press was unprecedented. The coroner's inquest was a spectacle televised and broadcast live on radio a week after Good Friday. It was ruled justifiable homicide. Now, after Lana Turner's appearance on the stand at the inquest, the ticket sales for Peyton Place skyrocket, which is how Peyton Place becomes the biggest blockbuster of 1958. Stephen Crane, Cheryl's father, and Lana Turner will battle for custody of Cheryl. Cheryl will opt to live with her grandmother as opposed to choosing one parent over the other. One nice thing, I know we kind of talk a lot of smack around here about Frank Sinatra, who was not very nice to Nick at certain points in his life, but a nice little thing about Sinatra here. When Cheryl moves into her new home with her grandmother, there was a present waiting for her. It was a brown leather three-speed Zenith record player with dozens of albums. There is a card that came with the gift that says to Cheryl, to fill up your days with music. Hope you enjoy this. Love, Frank. Yeah, I know. It's from her mom's friend of two decades, Frank Sinatra. It's a little Valentine's Day love to Frank Sinatra. It doesn't happen often on this podcast. Okay, so death of Johnny Stompanato. The rumors still persist to this day. People think that baby girl took the rap for mom. Lana and Cheryl will maintain their version of events. Always, always. They never deter from that version of events. And you almost hope that Cheryl did do it because if not, oh, it was a terrible price to pay for the sins of her mother. With the court inquest, the lawsuits, the threats, the publicity, not only that, Cheryl suffers multiple trips to juvenile court as well as stints in reform schools. But in the end, Cheryl does finish high school and goes to work for her father. It's honestly my favorite part of the story. In February 1968, Cheryl will go to a party in Laurel Canyon, and there she will see a beautiful woman talking to Marlon Brando. She'll ask around and find out that that woman's name is Joyce Leroy, but everyone just calls her Josh. Josh is a star on the amateur tennis circuit and has dated John Derrick and Peter Lawford, which really, who didn't date Peter Lawford? But two years later, Cheryl and Josh fall in love, and they have been together for, shoot, 50 plus years now. They got married in 2014. I do love a love story. And that, my darlings, is our bonus Notorious episode for the week. What do you think about the case? Do you think Lana did it? Do you think Cheryl did it? Do you think we'll ever know? Let me know. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Done and Done Podcast. Also, so exciting, now on Patreon.com, where you can show some love to the show and get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and other goodies, too, in return for your support. Y'all, thanks so, so much for listening to this extra bonus episode. As we begin year two of Done and Done in a whole new season, we will continue our investigation on your next Dunday. 
next Monday on Done and Done. Until we meet again, kind friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.